0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music and maps to money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, founder of NIU's Center for Burma Studies, Richard Cooler, details the origin and impact of this unique institution. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and I'm uh, here in video studio with Dr. Richard Cooler. Welcome, Richard.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you, and we're going to talk a whole bunch about your career and especially the the founding of our very important sister center on on campus, which is the the Center for Burma Studies. And so uh, which you were the founder. So let's jump right in. You came to NIU um, in 1970 as an art history professor from Cornell and labored as we just noted, three years, two years longer than you needed to, We <laughs> 32 years, and uh, left behind a great legacy that we're benefiting from. But um, so that our listeners maybe understand, see a bit about the, we're gonna talk a lot about the Center for Burma Studies, but so that they know what we're talking about and in a nutshell, that we can come back and talk about how it's founded. So what is the Center for Burma Studies in, in miniature? How would you describe it at elevator pitch?
1: Oh, the the Center for Burma Studies, for most of its existence, was the only center focused on Burma in the entire world, not just in the U.S. We promote Burma Studies in many different ways, one of which is that we founded, and or I founded, along with Michael Long uh the Journal of Burma Studies, and so that has continued up to the present day. We Have the Burma Art Collection, which is a very broad-ranging collection, unlike those in most art museums. And so we collect the things that have to do with culture and anthropology as well as fine arts. We promote on campus the teaching of Burmese and also courses whose content has to do with Burma. Also, and very importantly, the Um, International Conference on Burma was held here from 1986 up to the present time. Under my directorship, the conference was held every two years. It's now held here every four years. So we're involved in Burma studies in lots of different ways.
0: That critical mass has brought, brings scholars uh, concentration to work on Myanmar. Our, our library has, has really kind of the Burma repository for everything written about Myanmar, basically. And uh, so that it's had an, uh, a great ripple effect um, that, we, that we all benefit from.
1: Yes, I didn't mean to omit the, the library itself, which has a major collection on Burma. And also, there's a collection of maps on Southeast Asia, many of our maps of Burma historical maps of one kind or another so there's even more variety of materials on campus relating directly to myanmar
0: um so okay so so let's let's go back a bit you're a you're a young man in uh in coastal south carolina how do we get the how does the germ get in you like i want to study burma and i want to study art history or southeast asia like uh, where does it all come from
1: Oh, I think it comes from my great-grandfather, actually, who was a minister, but read about religions internationally, and when I was in sixth grade, the last member of his generation died, and the things in his house were um, dispersed, and I went with my parents, and no one wanted his, his religious books, and I said, I did, and they said, oh, fine, if you... Pack them. You can have them, but you're going to have to take them out of here as well.
0: And and they were broad comparative religion?
1: Oh, yes. And so I took them home, and one of the first ones that I read or came to my attention was one called the Hindu, spelled H-I-N-D-O-O at that time. And I read that and was beautifully illustrated with all the Hindu gods. And shortly thereafter, my teacher, and I was in the sixth grade at the time, uh proposed that all of us come in on Monday morning and talk about something we we're really interested in so my friends came in and talked about their dog or cat for about 45 seconds uh, i brought my book on the hindu and talked about hinduism for almost an hour uh
0: and the professor was bored <laughs> yeah.
1: no she said, Oh, this is a really good presentation, Richard. How would you like to do that for the other sections of the sixth grade? Oh, and wow. I said, Oh, I'll do that. And she said, That's very good, but it's going to have to be in an abbreviated format.
0: <laughs> so, right. You got a tight five, Richard. Yeah. There <laughs> we <laughs> are.
1: And from then on, I, I was interested in Asia and particularly Asian religion.
0: I love hearing people's kind of origin stories of uh, mine was National Geographics, you know, of, with Indonesia and Southeast Asia, and you know, I was fascinated by. So so you, um, so you got that bug, and then you, you ended up, of course, at, at Cornell for your PhD, which is a major source of sort of Southeast Asian studies. Did you also study at undergrad, Southeast Asia, or, or religious art? or?
1: Yes, actually. I went to the University of North Carolina for my bachelor's degree and majored in anthropology and studied with John J. Heidingman, who was a specialist in the anthropology of India. We didn't do a lot with Southeast Asia, but it was certainly that part of the world, and I can continue exploring Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Jainism, religions that are practiced throughout India and Southeast Asia.
0: Your PhD focused on on what in particular? Your dissertation?
1: On the Korean Bronze Drums of Burma. It's a, th- a thesis nobody has known quite how to classify. It doesn't really appear in the listings on art history. It doesn't really appear in the listings on anthropology. It doesn't really appear in the listings of ethnomusicology, or it may appear in all of them.
0: Interdisciplinary before it was a thing. <laughs>
1: yes, I, I'll agree to that.
0: Your love of the drum uh is one that we know well. if this were a video format I'd say go, go show and tell those drums but um uh she came to n i u uh in shortly thereafter in um in in seventy right um yes and and were yes. hired and was hired to teach southeast Asian art history, get in the wayback machine and uh i mean I remember when we were talking the first time you were saying like what the what the university used to be like. Uh, what an art history department used to be like, and and, and NIU's was particularly kind of big and amazing.
1: Well, there were two things that attracted me to Northern Illinois University. Uh, One was the School of Art. It's now known as the School of Art. It was the department at that time. And also the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. The School of Art was the second largest in the nation and had 17 art historians. Wow. Which is absolutely astounding. Most art history departments uh, have four faculty members, maybe six, (laughs) which means that everyone has to teach the required courses for the undergraduate degree, and you only get to teach something about your specialty every five years or so. Right. The boutique Uh,
0: course, yeah.
1: That's right. Whereas here at Northern, there was a specialist in – china and japan and i was india southeast asia and we shortly hired yet a third art historian in non-western art so i was privileged to teach uh, courses fairly frequently on the arts of southeast asia in addition to that was the center for southeast asian studies which was well established by that time and had real strengths in Thailand. Which you had
0: also studied Thai.
1: That's right. I'd studied Thai for four years in in grad school. And so that was very attractive. I was welcomed by the art department and also the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. When I came out for the final interview to visit campus, I was welcomed by Clark and Arlene Nair, who have played over all these years an important part in the development of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies and was um, equally as welcomed by the art department. So I was delighted then to be hired as an assistant professor. I had not finished my Ph.D. then, and so I went to Burma as fieldwork for the Ph.D., the thesis.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, um, and that's part of what I want to get to. Um, and one kind of an amazing thing. So, for our listeners who might not um, who might not know the timing, I mean, uh, Burma, Myanmar, uh, in nineteen sixty two, undergoes a, a, a coup by or Nay overthrows UNU and the government, and um, and it closes off uh, pretty significantly to the to the to the West. Um, you get there as in seventy three. Yes. As a uh, State Department Special Exchange Scholar. What was it like in, in Burma in 1973?
1: Well, if you flew, flew into to Bangkok, and that was one of the only ways to get the connecting flight to Rangoon, it was an absolute time warp between <laughs> Bangkok and Rangoon. Uh, Rangoon seemed to be almost 19th century, and at best, the sort of 1930s and 1920s. um, Wow. I found it thrilling to be there and find another country that didn't have a McDonald's on every corner. Right. uh, Which is now the case pretty much throughout the world. So that, that was very exciting. It also was a sort of tabula rasa when it came to art history because there were no Burmese art historians, and art history wasn't taught in Burma at all.
0: know well, why? I mean, why is that? It seems like that you know, art is often um, given a pass because it can it's can be non political. Of course, we know that it is political, but um, you know what I'm saying. Especially like religious art, or how how is it that and and you know, Burma has having such a sort of um, a widespread history in 19th century and, and previously of, of monk education and, and why why is there no um, it seems kind of baffling you think there would be at least a kind of a groundswell of this as a local kind of form of knowledge why not you know
1: well there were art schools in Burma uh, th- that taught the traditional arts there was no art history as such. the academic study of that, of it, that's right yeah. no academic study and One of the major reasons for that, I think, had to do with colonialism. And under the British, there were epigraphers who were very much interested in the past and the history of Burma, such as G.H. Luce and others. And Luce, even though he was an epigrapher and very much interested in uh, language and linguistics, he, he was interested in architecture and wall paintings and whatever, to some extent. But that wasn't the main thrust of what he wished to accomplish, and the Burmese that he taught, became the outstanding translators of past writings about Burma, uh, particularly inscribed on stone.
0: Yeah, and one wonders if, being um, you know administratively governor under the Raj, if if the orientalist focused was more on on India, Burma may have may have suffered a kind of a stepbrother focus. Um. Under colonialism and 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 after so it's an interesting dissertation topic for <laughs> for <laughs> for historians, art historians to look after um so Burma is is uh, uh you told me you told me an amazing story that adds a little uh specificity to this narrative about about uh car windshields uh, that tell tell our listeners that that was a great story Oh we've never thought of
1: <laughs> when I was there back in the 70s, the country was closed and there was very little import of automobiles so that whatever automobiles there were had been brought in under the British and had been repaired and the parts replaced uh, repeatedly. So I found it very difficult to identify any of the cars as to who, who was the original <laughs> maker. Uh, one of the problems... Uh, that everyone experienced in Burma was there were no replacement parts and the one the part of a vehicle that's most difficult to replace is the windshield it was absolutely necessary to have a chauffeur if you were going to drive around in Rangoon because if you left your car without an attendant various parts of it would disappear (laughs) consequently most people took the hubcaps off their cars immediately. The part of the car that really wasn't dispensable is the windshield. And so they were sort of gangs of four people or so who roamed about Rangoon, and if they found a car that had, without an attendant, within a few minutes, five minutes was the estimate, with a box cutter, they could cut the gasket around the front windshield and two of them hop in the car and pop it out by kicking the windshield, which was very, very valuable because there weren't any elsewhere yeah. in Rangoon. If you could not find a windshield or you could not find one that fit your model vehicle, the windshield windshields were replaced with glass panes that are used in windows and just cut in strips <laughs> and glued together to make them go around the curvilinear edge.
0: Like Like vertical strips
1: of... That's right, all these yeah. vertical strips. Wow. So consequently, if you rode in the passenger seat in the front, it was like riding around in a cubist painting because all the <laughs> landscape was <laughs> broken up into all these facets that kept changing as you went past. An interesting way to, to view Rangoon.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's some poetry there, I think. <laughs> some metaphor. Yes, <laughs> how about how about sort of foreigners in you know, expats in 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 Myanmar I mean there were almost no americans i mean and and other other foreign nationals like what what is what was the landscape like for scholars like yourself there
1: Well, there were very few foreigners who were not directly connected with one of the embassies the research I was conducting had it was at Pagan and if you could get into the country. It was on a two or three day visa. And it took uh longer than that to fly directly to Pagan and fly back because the flights were irregular for one thing. And it would take up take your entire time in Burma just to go up to Pagan and come back again. So when I was there, I was that was a real odyssey. I stayed in the UBA guest house Uh, in the center of the site, and at that time, the village of Pagan was right there at the UBA guest house. I'll tell you a little story about one of my first days in Pagan that has to do with exactly how exceptional it was that I was there. On my second day, I got up and decided that I would go to the archaeological office in Pagan town or village. And it's very hot in Pagan, frequently in the high 90s, sometime over 100 degrees, but very dry. And so when I first heard that I was going to Burma, I realized I had no idea what, what kind of clothing to take or what to pack. And I called one of the Burmese that I would met at Cornell and asked him what I should take with me and since he was a former prince in the Shan states, which is a plateau that's much higher than Pagan and also much cooler, he was astounded that I was going to Pagan and told me if I went there, I would surely die. It is so hot, <laughs> And so, not receiving uh, any more advice than that, I decided I was going to take shorts. Uh, and that first morning, I put on my shorts without really thinking about them too much. It was hot. And set out to walk over to the offices of the archaeological department. And so I walked through the village, and the village children (laughs) were so frightened by my coming through, they ran back into their compound where they hid behind the fencing, which was woven together of strips of bamboo and peeped through the hole to try to figure out who I was and what I was doing there.
0: Gleaming white legs.
1: <laughs> That's right. And I'm fairly hair suit with a beard as well. And so after a bit, there were two young guys who came, crept out and came up closer at a distance, walked all the way around me and then shouted to their friends or their brothers and sisters. And soon some more of them came out and they kept talking among themselves. And then they decided they were going to try out the hairs on my leg. And so they (laughs) ran over and started pulling the hair on my calf, right? And jumping up and down in the air and giggling. And so we had this great, mass of children who are just delighting, and they're sort of bedeviling me, and so I raised my hand and said, stop doing that, that hurts, (laughs) and then this same guy, this little guy who was a sort of leader of all the children, sort of ran over and patted my behind, I said, oh, cool! What are you doing? (laughs) And so he did that and said something to the other kids, and the other kids just all perked up and thought that was wonderful. And so all the other guys had to run over and pat my behind while they dashed past. And I realized finally what they were saying to one another, and that is they were saying, Hanuman, Hanuman. And he is the (laughs) monkey god in the Ramayana. And what they were doing was – patting my behind because the the elder kid had told them that I had a tail coiled up in my pants uh, and that you could pat it and feel it. And so wow. I decided <laughs> then to walk as quickly as I could to the archaeological service and arrive there with my hand in the air, sort of threatening all these kids to go away, uh, (laughs) knowing full well that the members of the archaeological service were probably directly related to all these children. Um, But that was one of my first experiences in Burma. (laughs) After that, I have never worn shorts in Burma again.
0: (laughs) That's just good advice in general. To, to, yes. If you're, if you're not a, uh, a, a preteen, don't wear shorts. <laughs> don't wear shorts in Southeast Asia. Wear pants. Yeah, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great story. Were you the only scholar there? Was there were there a few others on this uh, State Department Special Exchange Scholar Program?
1: I was the only scholar that came for a year. There were two others. seemed curious to me. Uh, One was a basketball coach and coached a basketball (laughs) (laughs) team, and then there was another guy that was into nuclear physics, and he gave a seminar or two on nuclear reactors. There were none in Burma whatsoever, and there was no prospect of getting one that I knew of. Uh, That was indeed peculiar, and they, they stayed for short periods of time.
0: So you're you're the only long, kind of long-term scholar there. So that yeah, that's a, that's kind of an incredible um, pin to put in the this whole <laughs> this whole Center for <laughs> Burma Studies as well. So um, who did you meet and connect with in Myanmar in Burma that would um, that would go on to sort of contribute to what later became the Center for Burma Studies?
1: A number of Americans in the embassy. One was uh, John Lacey. He was the chargé d'affaires, and he and his wife championed young artists in Rangoon. Okay. They welcomed me to all of their social occasions, and they frequently had openings for young artists at their home, which was quite large.
0: So a, a classic sort of scholar-bureaucrat kind of Renaissance person.
1: That's right. And he and his wife purchased modern paintings. They also purchased other things that were much older and maybe lacquer objects, silver objects, whatever. And he became a major donor to the Center for Burma Studies and its collections. Another person that I knew there was uh, Jerry Paul Bennett, who occupied a number of positions in the American embassy. He was economic advisor at one time. He would, did lots of other things. But he was a great scholar and bibliophile. He not only learned Burmese, he learned to read Pali, and had standing orders with vast number of antiquarian book dealers in the world that if they had anything they didn't think he already had to send it to him. And as soon as he could have a look at it, he'd decide whether he needed it or wanted it and he would buy it or he could return it to them. Consequently, he amassed an incredible library on Burma and he donated the entire contents of that library to Founder's Memorial Library here at NIU and there were 7 to 8000 objects wow. or items in this collection so that that was a major boost to our holdings on Burma
0: were they um british scholarship were they um asian scholar- what was the they ran the gamut of everything kind of
1: They ran the gamut gamut of everything from individual volumes to entire series of journals and had a great deal to do with northern Thailand and also Laos since he was consul in Chiang Mai at one time and had at least two tours of duty in Rangoon. Um, And published a number of articles on Burma as well
0: so he he felt he people like um John Lacey and Jerry Bennett fell in love with Burma and then started started collecting started acquiring started um personal researching um and then uh was that common in that embassy it seems like a kind of a concentration of compared to I'm just comparing to some of the other embassies in the world I won't mention countries but where there was not that kind of uh i need to learn the local language i need to understand
1: the i knew a lot of people in in the embassy socially however i didn't know all their exact interests i knew these two people in particular as well as several others who'd collected objects i was doing my research on bronze drums at the time many members of the diplomatic corps not only the u.s but internationally had bought drums as uh, coffee tables or end tables for their living rooms and so I was interested in photographing the objects, making ru- rubbings of them, I and mean, taking down about 275 items per piece. And so uh, I spent some time in Rangoon rubbing drums. Um, so, <laughs> the worst
0: ways to spend one's time.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, many of the items, particularly the art objects here in the Burma art collection came from scholars, American scholars, who were in Burma under UNU leadership of the country back in the 50s. And one of those people was Dr. Sarah Becker. She and her husband were there and a number of others. The Burma scholars in the U.S. over time became organized as the Burma Studies Group Within the Association for Asian Studies, which is the association of all scholars in the U.S. that are interested in any of the countries in Asia.
0: Did the Burma Studies Group, was that in the 60s that that started to form, Coalesce, or?
1: Later than that, I knew them in, after I returned from Burma, about uh, 1975. Okay. And at that time, several people who had been there in the 50s had passed away and had no place to leave their possessions that had to do with Burma. And the members of the Burma Studies Group, in discussing this among themselves, decided that they, they really had a critical mass of things that should be uh, collected in one place so future scholar could use those materials for research. And this was uh, prompted by the fact that two of the people who had passed away left their Burma positions to their alma mater in the U.S., where they went into the basement of the library until they got moldy, and then they found later that they had been thrown away. So members of the Burma studies group decided that they had enough materials that it could be an incentive for a university to establish a Center for Burma Studies.
0: Did, did Sarah Becker take the lead in that?
1: She did indeed, and put up her collection of Burmese art, which at that time was in Switzerland, as an inducement for a university to establish a Center for Burma Studies. And she made good on her promise and gave her collection to the center here at Northern and that is the beginning of the Burma art collection here so that the center for Burma oh. studies from its beginning has been very much involved with Burmese art. As so, objects. so,
0: so you'd say it began as a, it began as a sort of a, a conversation and a, and a, and a, a, a problem that, that, scholars of Burma saw in the in the 70s emerging which is that there's this these things are going to might be squandered if we don't have a, a central kind of way of um of of thinking and collecting and um and then you made a uh is it 85 you made a proposal I guess they they decided like well did you did you put NIU forward did the group put NIU forward how did it how did it the decision well, the, come for you to say like I'm going to make a blueprint for
1: oh the the Burma Studies group decided that they would then solicit proposals from Mm -hmm. any university that wanted to establish a Center for Burma Studies, and then they would review those proposals and decide where Burma Studies would be best served. They received proposals from Cornell, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison, the Smithsonian, and an outfit in California called the Institute for Religious and Integral Studies, and one from Northern Illinois University, which I wrote, and it was chosen by the Burma Studies Group as being the place where the Center for Burma Studies in the U.S. should be located. Uh, well,
0: first of all, thank you, and uh, that's a uh, that's a huge that's a huge get, of course. Um, what do you think? What, what were some of the um, sort of the the what became a sort of a legally binding covenant between the uh, foundation and the center? What 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 were some of the things that you had envisioned about what this uh Burma Studies um, Center for Burma Studies should should look like and and be as its as its aims?
1: well with the establishment of the centre for burma studies the burma studies foundation was established of and that the the foundation members came from the burma studies group the earlier group which continued to exist and the university entered into an agreement with the burma studies foundation that has 10 stipulations and for the center to remain here and receive the blessings of the foundation, those 10 stipulations must be observed and lived up to annually. One is that there would be an office for the center for Burma studies and it wouldn't just be a closet, uh, right. a sort of non just run out of somebody's office uh, that we must uh, take care of the objects and collections that were given to us according to acceptable curatorial practices. Right, so a professional collection. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That some of the materials in the Burma art collection must be on display at all times so that they just wouldn't give things and then have them disappear from sight for decades on end. Consequently, in conjunction with each of the international conferences on Burma studies, which I held every two years here at Northern, there was a major exhibition of Burmese art. And in the intervening year, we had exhibitions on campus in a variety of places, one of which was the fourth floor of Founders Memorial Library, where the Southeast Asia collection is located. Oh, there. There are other uh, stipulations. It had to be a d- director, and he should be half-time. The center itself had to be officially and legally established by the Department of Education, Illinois, and other things such as that.
0: So, so that it, so that it, that it's a real thing that that that, yes. that had that had legs in institutional support and and buy-in and cost share and all of that. That it wasn't just relegated to. Uh to a moldy basement uh, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: that document has i know all too well has has saved that collection in that center f- through some through some rough up and down financial times at the you know overall in academia or the university so it was uh, well envisioned to ride out <laughs> to ride the storm out so that was a, that was a, i'm glad i'm glad it was chosen i'm glad it was um written that way so so you have a whole another job being um director of the Center for Burma Studies in uh, 86, it's selected and established. And then shortly thereafter in 87 is the dedication of the, of the Center for Burma Studies. And it's quite a, uh, quite a dedication ceremony. Um, you had former prime minister of Burma, who knew at the dedication. So how did you pull that?
1: Well, at the time he had had left Burma And the summer before our dedication ceremonies, the Southeast Asia Summer Language Institute was held here at Northern. At that time, this institute circulated among the various universities that taught Southeast Asian languages, And with the institute came monies for at least one, and usually several courses in Southeast Asian studies, to be taught during the institute, which ran on for oh, six to ten weeks. And I realized that we could have a speaker, a keynote speaker at our dedication ceremonies, financed if he would come and teach a course that summer. And so I got in touch with Unu to see if he would be interested in doing this. Well, he was very much surprised at my proposal. And I explained we could teach a course on Burmese art and culture. And he immediately told me he didn't know anything about Burmese art and culture.
0: That Says one of the founding fathers of <laughs> Burma. Uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then I discussed this with him a bit further and he had just written <laughs> a, a sort of text on Vipassana meditation and we decided that he might teach meditation techniques and talk about that in the course and I would mm. team teach it with him and I would talk more about art and the two of us could talk about culture too and so that's the way the the course was set up that brought he and his wife here to campus for oh two months at least over that summer ending with his giving the uh, keynote address at our dedication ceremonies
0: wow that's a that's a that's exciting did you did you get any good stories about uh, the the revolution or <laughs> you know the the coup <laughs> or the or, or was he was he all about the meditation by then?
1: Our discussions had to do entirely with the meditation. Yeah,
0: sure, sure. I mean, I guess you can't you can't fangirl the the sort of the <laughs> constantly the just being a normal person. Also, in in a, in a couple of years span around its founding, you managed to pull together Sayasatun, um, uh, Burmese instructor uh, who would ha- have his hand in many of the. People who have studied Burmese since. And thereafter, um, uh, Michael Long Twin, who the, uh, the history department at NIU uh, hired and then went to serve here the, the, at the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. Were you the lone Burma presence before they came on board?
1: Yes, that was indeed the case. Uh, we also hired uh, Domei G. Win to uh-huh, be the uh-huh. librarian and curator of the Don V. Hart Southeast Asia collection, bibliographic collection in the library. So there were four of us on campuses. Right, so you
0: go to four, four tenure scholars.
1: That's right. Specializing in Burma. While Professor Michael Long-Twin was director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies, he and I were discussing Burma and he realized that he had a little bit of money left over from a grant and We began thinking about how we might use that to support Burma studies. And one of us, and I don't know exactly which one of us it was, proposed that we should start a journal of Burma studies. The journal in Burma that was begun by the British had been discontinued. And so as a joint effort between the Center for Southeast Asian Studies and the Center for Burma Studies, we put together a program So that the editor in the Center for Southeast Asian Studies, Ed Zayner, who was keen on doing this, that he would become the production manager for the new journal. I'd be the editor. The Center for Burma Studies would advertise the, the journal, keep list of the subscribers, we'd distribute the journal, receive the articles that were presented for publication and take care of that end of things, and that uh, the monies that came in from subscription would go immediately back into the journal for future publications. And so that, that worked very well, actually, for uh, until I stepped down from being director in 2001. And the journal continues today and has been greatly improved by those presently in charge. One of which is Professor Catherine Raymond, but also others, so that the journal now is published many times, twice a year,
0: and remains the the country the country area studies journal for for Burma Myanmar. Yeah, that's a that's a and, and again that's a legacy that it, it outlasted Crossroads, the journal that the center used to used to publish. So uh, so well done, you've. Uh, <laughs> You've you've outwitted and outlasted, the, and I know I know it hasn't been easy. Which we'll maybe talk about uh, in a subsequent episode with uh, Doctor Raymond. Uh, so so you've got this you've got this concentration of were you able to immediately attract uh, students from from the West and from from Burma and Asia to study? There's clearly a critical mass that happened sometime thereafter. But how how long did it take to get that um, rolling and kind of uh, bandwagon of, of of scholarship to happen?
1: That happened fairly rapidly. Um, One of the attractions for the Burma Studies group to have the Center for Burma Studies placed here at Northern is that the Center for Southeast Asian Studies had a concentration in the study of Thailand. And so these two countries are immediately adjacent to one another. They are both Theravada Buddhist countries, but are different in many ways. And the two was... Enriching, not only for scholarship, but attractive to students who could make comparative studies of of the development of religion and also uh, politics.
0: Yeah, if you wanted to study Thailand, Thailand, Burma, there's there's not a better place to study, especially in that like peak period, right? I mean,
1: right. And this would then include Laos as well.
0: You got like Clark Nair and, and John Hartman and Lad Thomas and, and you know political scientists and, and and linguists and who are all working on the Thai Lao side as well as uh, the Burma side. So it's it's quite a quite a significant. Um, how many how many um, how many students came to work in in art history?
1: Oh, it varied over time. Uh, his grad students, we had oh four or five at any one time. I had several donors who donated uh, fellowships to bring Burmese students to study at Northern. We had three of those, I think, over time. It, it, that doesn't sound like a grand number, but they are, we had some important students, one of whom was uh, Alexandra Green, who is now a curator at the Victorian Albert um, Museum in. Uh, London and has recently mounted a number of important exhibitions on Burma.
0: When did it become easier for students from Myanmar yeah, from Burma to start coming to train and study?
1: By the 1990s sort of there sort of 1990 and 1995 something like that.
0: Yeah and so I mean that's one of the one of the things that the um, Burma studies I think boasts and that we um that we love is, is kind of a part of the mission of both center for Burma studies and Southeast Asian studies is to, you know, expand the sort of content and, and knowledge, understanding and culture history of Burma, Myanmar, but, but also, and, and, and to, to our students, many of whom are, uh, happen to be Americans of course, but also it's for those to bring students from Southeast Asia to um, it's kind of, I've watched uh, Southeast Asians who um Maybe from Thailand or Cambodia or Indonesia, who didn't know um, much about uh, Burma, raised in their own kind of national catechisms, and coming to sort of really become comparative scholars of Burma in in kind of an, in a proto asean way, um, understanding and 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 could you envision the kind of the kind of ways that it would augment and supplement disciplines from so many students from so many areas, or was that, or was it more? Hey, let's just. Make sure we get this materials on Myanmar or from Burma and not let them rot uh, on your vision board. Did you think um, it might become something like that?
1: Yes, in a very vague way, but and have always enjoyed objects and consider them very important material about the past and that they're sort of hidden messages in them if you can learn to read them and so i was I was very much interested in creating the Burma Art Collection, that being director of the Center for Burma Studies mean, also means you're curator of the Burma Art Collection. And so that's a, an, another major duty, particularly since it has to be cared for.
0: It's not enough just to know Burma. You've got to know also the, the arts um, and the curational, curatorial yes. side. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, you retired in 2002, right, right as I... Um left strategically right as i was coming <laughs> but it's been a pleasure to get to 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 know you uh and when, the, the whole time i've been here what were some of the high and low points in after the in in the founding especially sort of the in that period and um just before and after the 90s through through the end of your tenure the the conference continued on that's
1: um, right yes high points were the continued interest in the Center for Burma Studies by administrators on campus, one of whom, Dr. Ann Kaplan, had been our guardian angel from the very beginning and advised me about uh, writing the original proposal and also getting the center in place. And she has been a constant supporter of the center of all these years. She served at Northern for a mere 40 years and has just recently within the last month uh retired and stepped down she has created a legacy foundation of which there are four beneficiaries and she's named the center for burma studies as one of those beneficiaries so that's incredibly long-term support uh, for which we are indeed very very thankful so we've had a number of individuals who have been interested in, in the center and very supportive.
0: Its stature, it's raising, its what was noticed on campus, obviously, is, you know, the, the, the outsized role of ability for the Center for Women's Studies to bring in dignitaries, scholars, um, to put on these major international conferences. That must have, that must have impressed or, like, like there's, there's, there's something there, right?
1: Yes. It, it certainly kept the name of a uh, center current and in the news on campus in that way as well as others brought the center to the attention of the administrators within the university
0: was it ever under fire um you know were there un un uh, unappreciative or un, un uh, you know the administrators or others who um are maybe from the Burma Studies Foundation that uh, that didn't want to continue the support that it had had before
1: Well, there were a number of those difficulties over time As with all institutions, we go through budget cuts, sometime almost annually, and the deans are usually charged with cutting their budgets by a certain percentage.
0: You saw your own art history department, probably just positions not get replaced.
1: That's right. So... uh, Always, almost always under the gun to use fewer resources within the university when if you're going to thrive and expand, you need more of those things, not less. And so those kinds of battles had to be constantly fought.
0: Yeah. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk more in, in, in subsequent episodes, but the, uh, that continues and is, is, is successfully navigated, um, continuing onward. Uh, so for our, for our listeners, we're going to have a couple parts to this, uh, the kind of, uh, Center for Burma kind of focus, one that'll bring us up to date with this, with the Center for Burma Studies with its, um, current director, uh, Dr. Dr. Catherine Raymond, and then also, uh, a pretty great little detective story Indiana Jones like uh when is the when is the movie have you what are you shopping around movie rights for your uh, repatriation of the buddha uh <laughs> tale <laughs> little teaser for the audience
1: right <laughs> it'll be coming out anytime
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's a pretty pretty great one um i was in uh, fortunate yangon last year to uh to have seen it there's a beautiful uh, in all its glory, it's in the National Museum and, and, and then a great panel and narratives about the, this kind of uh, international journeys of this Buddha um, that we'll, uh, we'll talk more about. Richard, I want to thank you for your, for your, for your time and your, especially your just love and constant support of, of things Burma. So we, we really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so very much. This has been a great pleasure.
0: Yeah. And uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon and uh, we'll, we'll hear, stay tuned listeners. There's, there's more to come to this tale. So thank you, Richard, for your, again, for your time.